For me, it was important to have these two figures facing each other. If you stand in front of the work, you as a viewer, you animate it, depending on where you are on the, on, around the plinth, it looks like these two figures are about to combat each other. And then you move a few steps away around the plinth, looks like they're about to embrace each other. So for me, it's, it was this idea of the old meeting the new. What kind of reunion will that be? Hello and welcome to Biennial Bites, everyone, the official podcast of Sharjah Biennial 15. My name is Horal Kasimi. I'm the director of Sharjah Art Foundation and curator of Sharjah Biennial 15, thinking historically in the present. In this podcast, I'm going to be asking artists about their practice, their process, and how their project speaks to our current time and place. Over the next half an hour, we're going to find out what makes their work important and why we should be paying attention. Today, we have Mary Sabande, a participating artist in SB15, joining us from her studio in Cape Town. Hi, and welcome to Biennial Bites, Mary. It's wonderful to have you with us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. A little more about Mary and her work for our listeners. Mary's practice combines costume design, photography, and installation to challenge the representation of South African women within Western visual depictions. Her installations contain characters that are versions of herself, as well as other women in her family. Together with sculptures and photographs, these works suggest alternative historical realities and reflect on the violence of colonialism and apartheid. What does it mean to depict collective experiences of injustice through an autobiographical mode? Can art help us reimagine difficult pasts and ways that allow us to heal in the present? These are some of the questions at the heart of Mary's work. Let's hear more from the artist herself. Mary, uh, this is your first time at Sharjah Biennial. What was your experience like? I traveled with an, with an open heart and I wanted to learn more about other people's cultures. It was my first time at the UAE. Um, and of course, wherever I go, anywhere in the world, especially to places that I've never been before, I always go to Google. I Google like, um, I Google all the, um, the cultural or heritage spaces. I always want to know, you know, what, what, what makes the space a space? What, what makes the country a country? Because um, I think you can always pick up social issues when you, when you, look, at, um, when you look at the cultural spaces. So I Googled that and... Um, and yeah, and, and for me, it was just a learning curve. Um, people, people, we all different in our beautiful, colorful way. So it was, um, it was great. And also um, meeting other artists um, at the Biennale. You know, some of the faces I used to study <laughs> in, my, in my undergrad. And then there they are, Faye, you know, in live. Um, yeah, so it was actually um, an amazing time um, of connecting. And was it as... Google suggested when you visited? Was it as accurate as Google <laughs> explained to you? <laughs> Not really. I feel like other people put, put their own opinions on Google, but it's always good to actually get just get a gist of it. Um, but at the same time, um, I think for me was because usually or well, what I've what I've learned a lot um, was via was everything is happening in Dubai. So there was little information on charge except for um, previous biennales. Um, but yeah, it, um, it passed my, my test. <laughs> I would love to visit the UAE, um, yeah, in sometime in the future. Well, thank you for being part of it. I feel this year's theme of thinking historically in the present also really resonated with the kind of ideas you work with. So let's talk more about that. True. Mary, 
how did growing up in South Africa under apartheid influence your early development as an artist? And what was it like to witness the transition from a segregated society into an integrated one? I feel like as a society, we, geez, we're very colorful in our complicated, beautiful, ugly way. So I was born in 1982, um, which um, a few years later in 92, um, I witnessed the fall of apartheid. And of course, I was 11 years old. I wasn't getting the full picture of what was happening, but I got the feeling that this was an important moment in that my grandmother asked me to accompany her to go queue to vote for the first time. And there was just this joyous atmosphere that I picked up and I realized as a child, as an 11-year-old, I'm, I thought, no, this is real. This is actually an amazing time. This is the fall of apartheid, even though I didn't understand what that word meant to an extent. As oh, in my childlike memory, I remember thinking it means that white people have a better life and then we are just, you know, people. In other words, um, I accepted my role because I didn't know any better. Well, in your work, you've invented a character called Sophie, a sculptural figure who is also an interpretation of your ancestors. You dress her up and depict her in a variety of roles, which Black South African women were historically excluded from. Why and how did you come up with the concept of Sophie? My work, um, as you mentioned, it's, yeah, it's centered around this avatar or um, this alter ego named Sophie. So first of all, um, I'll start with the name. So in South Africa, uh, naming was very important. So na- me naming her Sophie was a reminder that um, during colonial times or slavery and of course apartheid, black children were given names that were easy to remember or easy to remember for, 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 for white Europeans. This practice, I think, was also aimed at suppressing cultural identity and also convert natives into Christianity. Hence, my name is Mary. So that was used to, to exhibit that you have actually converted. Now you're a Christian. You're not a, you're not a Bantu. You're not a, you're not a, you're not a native. So that um, played an important role in, in my art practice. And of course, um, the, the, that body of work or that avatar um, allowed me to look into my personal history. So I used this avatar as a vehicle to tell my personal history, which is, which is um, seated on, a, on the foundation of a broader history of South Africa. So if, if one were to speak about um, the history of South Africa, you can't go around that institution that is apartheid. So it has become um, an important um, foundation in, in, my, in, my, in my studio practice. There's a kind of therapeutic aspect to inserting ourselves into history through fantasy, isn't there? Oh. Uh, bodies and narratives that were kept out and erased can be brought back in and restored through their artistic depictions. You also mentioned your father in one of our previous meetings as well, that it's not only uh, women's bodies, but the depiction of your father in his military costume. Could we talk about that a little bit? So um, my father joined the army in 1981, which was in the height of apartheid. And later, I didn't understand um, why would he actually um, assist in, in the apartheid regime. But I've learned that through my research, I've learned that these young men didn't have a choice. It was either you, you know, you go to jail for, for petty crime 
or you get a job, you get recruited. So these young men uh, were yanked out of their homelands to go. Some of them um, were building cities. The, the reason why um, we have Joburg today, because Joburg is a city of gold, um, was because of these young men were taken from their homelands and and they were brought into the cities to build the cities. So my father was actually in that, where he was also recruited to join the army. And of course, he worked for the army until two years ago. But when I interviewed him, because I really wanted to understand what made him join the army. And for him, it's, it, what I picked up is he did not have a choice. It was part of the amendment to actually be in the army as a, a Black young man. It's either you work in the army or you, um, you become a gold digger in the mines or a garden boy, etc. So that actually entered my studio in that I wanted to create this, this man that I actually I hardly ever, I, I've never seen him actually. So he, they, my father and my mother got divorced when I, was, when I was about three years old. From three years old up to 16 years, I've, like, I didn't know him at all. My mother and my grandmother had a few photographs of him and most of the photographs he was wearing an army uniform. So in my childlike um, uh, memory, I used to think of him as this giant toy soldier who's saving us, who's saving the country. And then I met him for the first time when I was 16. And of course, I had a lot of anger towards him and I didn't understand why he did what he did. But I think education and, and research and just understanding us as a people amended my relationship with my father because I understood that like, it was actually the times. It was actually part of the law for what he did. And also a lot of young men, as I mentioned, they were all taken away. So the structure of, of a mother and a father in a home was broken. And a lot of young men or boys grew up without a role model. They never, they never saw an uncle around or a father around. That concept became an idea that I wanted to explore further in my, in my art practice. And, um, and I realized actually it created a lot of peace. It, it created a lot of understanding between me and my father. And it also created a lot of understanding to, to a lot of black men, because at some point I didn't understand the, why a lot of black homes were broken but it was part of the system. You inserted yourself into his uniform as well. You used your own figure and, and body to, to take his place in a way like you did with your mother. Yes. So the reason is that um, I inserted myself in that I didn't know him. In my head, I was imagining what kind of person he could be. So how I knew his face was through photographs. And um, I remember thinking like, well, if I were to talk about my father, how would I do that? How would I, how would I speak about the character that he is in my artwork? Because I don't know this guy. So I inserted myself in the uniform. I started performing and taking this role of being my father. Um, it was because what I knew of person he was or what I knew of him was through my mother. And also what my grandmother was telling me, okay, this man was, etc. So it was important that um, actually he becomes another person. And that person, of course, was me. It was a way of just taking control of the story. I wanted to tell the story the way I saw the story. It was also important that I put myself in, in that uniform in that um, it allowed me to dig deeper into what it means to tell a story. And of course, you know, like in Africa... 
people used to tell stories, word of mouth. That's how stories used to travel from one tribe to the next without writing them down. And of course, at some point during the spread of word of mouth, um, each telling, you know, a detail will be missing. A fact here and there will actually be changed. So for me, I was interested in the idea of augmented stories. As much as I speak about my father, it's not the true version of him. It is what I imagine of him. It is what I think he should be. So it became part of my storytelling in the studio. What about your use of fabrics, fashion and textiles? <laughs> Can you talk about the process and how you come up with the different costume designs? Well, I love fashion. I love, um, I love working with fabric. At some point when I was in high school, I thought I was going to be a fashion designer. Uh, but when I applied for fashion, they didn't take me. <laughs> and then um, fine art was actually my second, um, my second option. What I enjoy the most in my art practice is I can actually combine these two worlds, fashion and fine art. And this allowed me to tell these stories, my personal history or, or a general history of South Africa. So the blue body work, I looked at um, the Victorian fashion. And for me, it was a springboard. I knew that I wasn't going to spend much time there. At that time, I was looking at other artists because this work started just right after my undergrad. So artists like Kara Walker influenced me in my work. And artists like Yinka Shonibari played an important role in my, in my studio practice. Um, Tracy Rose played a very important role in my art practice in that I looked at how she was doing her performances as also I do performances in front of the camera. And that's when, you know, um, I'll have a limited viewers mm -hmm. or audience. And then the camera person would take like about 50 or 60 pictures of, you know, me performing in front of the camera. And then from there, we'll pick one picture and then that picture becomes a photographic print. So fashion played that role in my work. It's interesting you talk about Yinka Shonebare's work and, and the textile and um, and he's right across from your work in the same uh, location. Yes, <laughs> yes. Welcome back, everyone. We're speaking with artist Mary Sibande about her project for the 15th Raja Biennial. Let's just describe your SB15 work to our listeners. So we see a sculpture of Sophie wearing a blue dress and white headscarf, symbolic of a domestic worker standing in front of a purple figure, almost showered in these purple organisms coming down from the sky. The purple symbolizes the 1989 Purple Rain anti-apartheid protest in Cape Town. The staged encounter between the two sculptures is meant as a meeting between colonial past and post-colonial present. Can you take us through the iconography of this particular scene? Why is Sophie depicted as a maid confronting this purple entity? This institution that is apartheid, it was constructed to deny and deprive Blacks of rights to access to quality housing and an education. And of course, this um, pushed a, a lot of um, Black women into servitude. And there was also an introduction of Bantu education. So Bantu education was introduced during, in the height of apartheid. It was a system of um, inferior curriculum. And then, of course, this curriculum would channel Blacks into 
labor and servitude. And for me, that was the, that was the cue to actually have this um, domestic worker. I'm paying homage to the women in my family who are all domestic workers from as far as our family history can go. I'm actually in a privileged, privileged position in that I was born in 1982 and I witnessed the fall of apartheid in, 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 in the 90s. So I felt like, you know what, I need to rewrite this story, but in a way that I understand it, in the way that, I, in the way that my family understands it. Um, and, and that was the birth of this character, Sophie. So now she is facing um, a future self to have these two figures stand literally on the plinth at the same time. I wanted to look at ways of how do I actually tell this idea of or this notion of violence, because violence is everywhere in South Africa. Our society is built on violence as far as you can go to slavery times up to the present day. And of course, now violence has become um, the legacy of our country. And then an episode happened in Cape Town in the 90s where people were marching and uh, rebelling uh, against um, apartheid. So it was an uprising. Um, so the apartheid um, police laced their water cannon uh, with purple dye. So the idea of marking has become part of our DNA as South Africans. So purple, from what I understand, is it's a very difficult color to actually wash off on your skin. It takes days. So the apartheid police um, arrested Tons of th thousands of thousands of people um, in, the, in the following days after the march. So I thought of that idea of this leader, this purple leader who's leading um, the, the sea of people who are all purple, but at the same time they come from her. And of course, um, I can't deny that I, I watched a lot of alien movies. That well, I guess one can see that in the in the work. So this purple figure is standing and facing an old self. So now, if my ancestors were to meet me, because the purple figure, I feel like it represents me. It's, it's, it speaks about me and it's, it speaks about what I see around me. And it speaks about my experience as someone who is living and thriving in post-apartheid South Africa in comparison to my forebears. For me, it was important to have these two figures facing each other. If you stand in front of the work, you as a viewer, you animate it. Depending on where you are on the, on, around the plinth, it looks like these two figures are about to combat each other. And then you move a few steps away around the plinth, it looks like they're about to embrace each other. So for me, it's, it's, it was this idea of the old meeting the new. But what kind of reunion will that be? And of course, it behind the purple figure, she is accompanied by these forest of creatures. And one can see that because um, that they're connected to her in that the umbilical cords are still connected to her and they are falling onto the floor. They give the idea that this figure has just given birth to this, this forest of creatures that are hanging. And also I thought of a work that is theatrical. And also this work was also influenced by uh, the capoeira. So a few years ago, a year before I made that work, in 2013, I visited Brazil. So what I usually do when I go to any country, I Google what the country is about, and I also take the red bus. So I took the red bus, and then it was one place where we made a stop, and they were talking about this dance where slaves, uh, when they got off the, the ships from the Atlantic route, 
they used to practice this capoeira every Sunday because that was their day off. And this capoeira was meant, it looked like a dance, but actually slaves were teaching each other um, on how to fight. So for me, I was like, I was so fascinated with that idea and I wanted to take that and actually make it work. Um, we are all, there's, there's this interconnection between Africa and the Americas. What I've also learned is that the Jim Crow law in the USA actually influenced apartheid. People didn't need to have police around them. They policed each other. So this idea fascinated me, like this, this idea of this mind being transformed and, and coming part of the land. It gave the work a platform to actually be what it is. And also, when I moved to the uh, Pebble Border work, I didn't want to make ordinary dresses anymore. I wanted to manipulate fabric. And hence the creatures that are hanging um, behind the Pebble figure. And then looking at the vines that is covering her face. So the idea of interconnections, the idea of roots. So the idea of just manipulating fabric where... Sometimes it doesn't look like fabric anymore. It looks like, um, I'll say, it looks like fiberglass or, or, or some other material. So for me, I wanted to see like, well, how do I actually work with fabric, but actually push it a step further? And I think this, the purple, the purple figure has embodied that in, you know, taking the, the use of fabric into another level. Oh, it's interesting how you talk about um, yourself and your ancestors looking at you um, in a way that is uh, kind of looking at you being everything they they wish they could be. And at the same time, looking at all the shared traumas that are happening in other parts of the world. Can you tell us about the work and what it says about the shared traumas of the wider community in South Africa? So now a lot of people, a lot of scholars are speaking on this notion of the legacy of apartheid. And it's something that I'm kind of setting my foot in, but at the same time, at this, at this point in my practice, I'm still doing um, some research, played a pivotal role in understanding what is violence, especially the well-known text that he wrote in 1961 um, concerning violence, in which he speaks of righteous anger as a catalyst of change. I'd love to understand us as a people I'd love to understand this righteous anger because from what I've learned in life, there are two types of anger. There's righteous anger and anger. Righteous anger seeks to restore, which I think a lot of South Africans are there. As much as they are angry, but they want to fix. They want to fix the past. They want to fix the current. They want to fix the future. It's funny because when you speak about traumas, um, South Africa tried to actually play or do this monstrous therapy room, which was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So this was um, introduced right after the fall of apartheid. So the idea of the TRC, namely, it was um, for the perpetrators to tell what happened during, during apartheid and, of course, the victims to find closure. But it became twisted in that it wasn't about the perpetrator telling of the stories or of the crime that happened during apartheid. It became more about the victim. So the victim ended up almost becoming the villain in, in this. It wasn't structured in a way that helped the nation. And hence, 
Uh, we're looking at the legacy of, of apartheid. We're looking at crime in, in our country. We're looking at violence. So this legacy of apartheid is actually this push and pull where scholars are, are still trying to capture it and understand it in a way. And I think I'm also in the midst of that where I'm also trying to understand this legacy and what does it mean and what does it mean to be um, someone who was born in the 80s and lived through post-colonial South Africa and also is living during post-colonial um, apartheid. So it's this understanding where we're trying to understand us as a people and, and also as a nation. Thanks for that, uh, Mary. Uh, finally, could you talk about the project's relation to the theme of thinking historically in the present, which in a way underlies a lot of your practice? The idea of being in the present, but also looking in the past. Actually, that, that's my studio practice. As much as I'm making work right now, but it relies greatly on history. And um, I also realized, actually, it's not even history on South Africans. It's a broader history of the world because it was also important for me to allow myself to learn about other people's cultures. And I feel like if one opens themselves to other cultures and other languages and other ways of living, except for your support, from what you are used to, it plays also a role in, in my art making in that it's me speaking about the capoeira and Jim Crow. You know, it's all these ideas that, I, that, that were happening outside of South Africa, but now actually I brought them to South Africa because they relate. And I feel like as a people, whether from Europe, talking about the Victorian era, you know, and going to other places in our continent. So this idea, it just speaks of an international idea that actually wherever you place this work, people will relate to it. And I always say that there's no wrong or right way of reading an art object. It depends on where you come from. You might read it in a, according to your background. And also, I think for me, it's always exciting when one reads an artwork according to their background. Thank you for sharing all of this with us. And thank you for joining us on Biennial Bites, Mary. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. And thank you to our listeners who tuned in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our conversation series. To view Mary's work online, click on the link in the show notes. And to see them in person, please visit Alhamriya Studios. We look forward to seeing you there. For more of these chats with artists from around the world, subscribe to Sharjah Art Foundation's channel whenever you get your podcasts. For updates about the ongoing Sharjah Biennial, follow us on Instagram at Sharjah Art.